All right, so in 1 Samuel chapter 25, David got angry. We talked about this last week. And David got angry, and consequently, he set out to make what would have been a horrible, life-altering mistake. But we saw that God used a wise and godly woman to save David from himself. It wasn't the first time David got angry, and it wasn't the first time David was about to make a bad decision. And I think about that and realize, you know what? I'm not much different than David, and you're not much different either. Uh, I mean, I think all of us are guilty of making boneheaded decisions, right? In fact, raise your hand if you've made a boneheaded decision. All right, leave your hand up. Raise your, keep your hand up if you've made a boneheaded decision like in the last six months. Leave it up. Last month. Last week. Anybody today's already made one, right? See, I mean, we're, hey, we know it. We make terrible decisions. I mean, and, and we just do, and, and we make mistakes, and we mess up. But here's what I know. In the midst of the boneheaded decisions, in the midst of making a whole lot of terrible mistakes, God's working in our life. He's working in my life, he's working in your life, and he was working in David's life. It reminds me of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where, God, where Paul said this. He said, I am confident that he who began a good work in us, he will carry it on to completion. And I don't know about you, but I have to rest in that a lot. Because I'm like, I, it's just not working out for me, or they're not coming as far as, along as fast as I would want them to. But I'm confident God will carry it on to completion. So David's made a lot of mistakes. You and I have made a lot of mistakes. Today's one of those days where we finally see D David make like a good decision. And, and, and it's a good choice. And, and it's an incredible story. And I think it'll really speak to all of us. And it's in 1 Samuel chapter 26. Turn there if you haven't already. It's going to tell us the story about how David spared Saul's life. And as you hear that, if you were here two weeks ago, you think, wait a second. Pastor Derek talked about David sparing Saul's life two weeks ago, didn't he? And, you're, and the answer would be yes, he did. Different story. He looked at 1 Samuel chapter 24, and, and we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 26. The question is, why in the world will the author of 1 Samuel decide to put two stories almost back-to-back -back about David sparing Saul's life. Why did he do that? Well, they convey two totally different messages. There's major differences in the stories. In chapter 24, David was in a cave hiding. Saul just happens to kind of stumble into the same cave that David was in. In chapter 26, though, David is actually going to hunt Saul down. He's going to initiate a raid into Saul's armed camp. He's going to take his spear and his, you know, his Nalgene bottle or his Hydro Flask. And, and, and so the question is, why did the author feel the need to do this, to, to give these to us? Well, 1 Samuel 26 is a different message than 1 Samuel 24. It's a message, it's a lesson about courageously loving and caring for those whom we are not totally right with relationally. Courageously loving and caring for, for those who, who may never ever reciprocate our kindness and goodness, who may never say thank you and respond to us in a favorable light. Francis Chan writes in his book, Crazy Love, he said this. He said, I believe God wants us to love others so much that we go to extremes to help them. 
That's what 1 Samuel chapter 26 is all about. So let's dive into the story and look at this crazy, courageous love that David demonstrates. Now, I kind of want to remind you, David's been on the run from Saul for years. He's always been able to stay just one step ahead, but this time, it's gonna, the story's going to change a little bit. So let's look at it. Verse 1, 1 Samuel 26, it says, The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? Now, Jeshimon was, the, was this desolate wilderness on the southern part, of the far southern reaches of Judah. And the Bedouins who lived there were called Ziphites. Look at the verse again. The Ziphites went to Saul. So these Ziphites, they are pro-Saul and they're anti-David. And it's not the first time they went to Saul. Back in 1 uh, Samuel chapter 23, they also turned David into Saul. And so even though David's been ahead of Saul and one step ahead of him, by this time, Saul finally, finally, finally has good intel on where David is. So he takes his elite 3,000 soldiers to go hunt David down. Verse 4 tells us that once David realized Saul was in the vicinity, he sent out a party to kind of scout and figure out Saul's precise location. That's our background as this drama begins to unfold. Look at verse 5. Once, so David now has all, he knows exactly where he is. And so it says, then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. So I want you to get this picture. You have this image here, and, and David's on the hillside. It's nighttime. He looks down, and he sees 3,000 elite soldiers carefully arranged. And, and in the very middle of all these sleeping bodies, there in the middle was Saul. And there was Saul's spear that was stuck in the ground. Now, that spear represented something. It was really like the scepter, right? It was basically saying, here lies the king. And right nearby that spear was also his water jug. Next to Saul was his number one general, Abner. Everything is peaceful, quiet, serene. Not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. So David comes up with this idea. Let's go into the camp. Let's enter in. Now, this is an insane idea, right? This is a suicide mission. David then turns to his men that were with him, Abishai and Ahimelech, and he said, all right, I'm doing this. Who wants to go with me? Now, I, this, this says this to two of his soldiers. Now, I've been told that, it, that in the army, you learn very quickly never to volunteer for anything. But Abishai lets his loyalty get the best of his common sense. He's like, I'll go. And so David and Abishai slip off the mountain. They slip down rock to rock, going through the ravine, and then up the other side. Finally, they reach Saul's outer lines. And it's strange, because everybody's asleep. Everybody. They quietly tiptoe through and slip quietly through the outer circle and eventually make their way into the very center where Saul lies. It's ironic, isn't it? All around Saul, surrounding him, is his security detail, and they're fast asleep. Verse 8 gives us Abishai's reaction to what's going on. 
He's like, oh my goodness, David, you have any idea? This is amazing. The fact that we're here, the fact that this is happening right now. And so he says this, verse 8, today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him down to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. Abishai's saying, hey, I want to play my favorite outdoor sport. Pin the spear on Saul, right? And he's arguing, man, it would virtually be a sin not to kill Saul because God has given us this incredible opportunity. And I think Abishai represents that natural impulse that's in all of us, right? It's sort of the world's golden rule. Do you know what the world's golden rule is? Do unto others what? Does anybody know? Do unto others. I heard it somewhere over here. Do unto others what? Before they do unto you. Right? That's the world's golden rule. And that's what Abishai's thinking. Everything argues in favor of letting Abishai do this dirty deed. No one would blame him if he did. Kill Saul. End this whole thing. But he didn't. And that's where the story starts to get interesting. And David gives us two reasons why he doesn't kill Saul. And the first was this. It wasn't his place. Look at verse 9. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's who? Who can lay a hand on the Lord's? I want to say it together. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed? Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And the answer is no one can. Even though Saul was essentially morally bankrupt, he was still chosen by God. He was still God's king. And so it wasn't right for David to take personal revenge against him. It wasn't his place. Second, it wasn't the right time. Look at verse 10. The Lord himself, this David speaking of Saul, he says, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he'll die or he'll go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's who? On the Lord's anointed. Even if you or I, this is powerful, church. Even if you or I have been greatly wronged, even if we've been repeatedly wronged, it's not our place. It's not our place to seek revenge. It's not our place to get even. It's all the Lord's business. It's not our business. He'll handle it. And God is able to perfectly take care of righting the wrongs that have been done to us in his own time and in his own way. Romans chapter 12, verse 19 just makes it clear. Never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. Never. That's God's business. It's not ours. One other little detail. Look at verse 12. It says, before they left, David took the spear and the water jug near Saul's head. Why do they take it? That's going to play out later in the story. But it's, an, it's clearly an unmistakable sign to, to, you know, to, to Saul that David had been there. So they grab the spear, the water jug. They slip back quietly through the lines. They make their way you know, up the, up the, you know, down the ravine, up the ravine, and head out. And I'm sure, I'm sure Abishai is muttering to himself and thinking to himself the entire time, I cannot believe this. I mean, good grief. We came out here. I came out here the middle of the night. I went against what I should do, but I volunteered anyways. I've almost broke my neck on these rocks. I took a suicide mission. I risked my life for what? The spear and water jug? I mean, really? We could have ended this whole dispute and feud with Saul 
right here tonight. It could have been an over. But David had something else in mind. And once they get back to the other side, up on top of the other ravine, David shouts out at the top of his voice, Abner, oh Abner, wake up, sleeping beauty. Time to get up. It's go time. And I think about that, and it reminds me of one of my favorite things that I get to do every year when we go on our mission trip to Mexico. And one of my favorite joys is waking people up at 6 a.m. and say, time to get up, time to get up, after the kids have been sleeping for about three hours that night. And I feel bad for the adults who, you know, had to go through it all. But I go, wake up, everybody, wake up. Now, i got to tell you, the last couple of years we've been in, like, more of houses. Um, and it's just not the same thrill it used to be for me. Before, <laughs> because before, the, everybody was intense. And I loved when there were moist nights. Because when I went to wake them up, you just kind of rattle the tent. And if you slept in those tents, what falls all over you? All the dew just comes down on everybody. And, you know, it's kind of like getting cold water in your face. And so, yes, I enjoyed that torture. <laughs> Go to sleep earlier then, and it won't be a big deal. Can I get an amen to anybody who's been to Mexico as an adult? <laughs> the soldiers begin to stir as they hear this call out and the shout out. Abner hears his name, and he, verse 14, he yells back, Hey, who are you? Who, who's that out there? David's reply in 1 Samuel 26, verses 15 and through 16, is, is one of the greatest pieces of sarcasm in the Old Testament. And he basically essentially says to, to, to Abner, he says, Listen, Mr. In Command, Mr. Protect and Take Care of the King, you're a lousy guard. You and all your elite shoulder, soldiers are terrible. In fact, we were just there. You guys, if you were in my little army, you would deserve to die. And I know, I know you're going to say you don't believe this. You don't believe that we are there. Take a look at Saul said. What's missing? Oh, the spear. Oh, the jug. I got them right here. We were there. What a slam it was to Abner and his men. But the message was unmistakable. David's not the threat to Saul. He never has been. David was not a threat. He was the most faithful defender, in fact, of Saul's life. Clearly more faithful than the soldiers were. Saul's now awake, verse 17. He says, hey, is that, is that your voice, David, my son? And it brings us now to the heart of the chapter, as David says in verse 18. Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? You see, for David, after all these years of being on the run, it still doesn't make sense to him. Why is Saul after him? Why does he continue to hunt him down? David has never done him wrong, and yet Saul keeps seeking his life. Isn't that a little bit true of our life, in general at least? You do your best, man, and things don't work out. You turn the other cheek only to be hit with a right uppercut. You go the second mile, and yet they end up hating you more. You try hard at something. You put your best foot forward. You thought a, a, a tremendous about it and how to tackle this and go after that, and then people just question your motives. You say it's in the Lord's hands, but then it gets worse. 
you're sitting there like David saying, Lord, why is this happening to me? Can anybody relate? Because I know you can. When David asks that question, only two answers come to his mind. The way he's thinking about it, he's like, okay, I've either committed some sin and God's using Saul to punish me, or these men are evil who are speaking into Saul's life, trying to convince him that I'm against Saul. Look at how David puts it, verse 19, 1 Samuel 26, verse 19. He says, if the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. In other words, if I'm guilty, if God's behind all this, uh, you know, listen, seriously, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll confess my sin. I'll make an offering. I will do anything, David's saying, to finally settle this. Then he goes on, look at verse 19. If, however, men have done it, well, then may they be cursed before the Lord. Somehow this gets to Saul a little bit. I think Saul, in his better moments, he likes David. And so he says in 1 Samuel 26, verse 21, he says, I have sinned. Come back, David, my what? Come back, David, my, what's the word? David, my son. It's very important. We're going to come back to that. Very important. David, let's say it again. David, my son. I'm not going to try and harm you anymore. Come back. Now, the question is, was he sincere? Based on the history, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Based on the history, should David come back? (laughs) Absolutely not. That would not be wise in this situation, but David was willing to do something else. David was willing to send the spear back. Why is that so important? Because the spear was the symbol of, you know, the, 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 the throne of God, so to speak, the throne of the king of Israel. And David wasn't going to keep it out of respect for Saul and Saul's position and God's choosing Saul. Verse 23 is the key, though. David explains what's happening deep inside, the attitude behind what David was trying to accomplish here. And David said this, he said, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. I love how the New Living puts it. It said, The Lord gives his own record for doing good and for being loyal. In your moments of crisis, conflict, and difficulties, this is kind of one of those put-it-out-there statements, draw a, long sa- draw a line in the sand statements. But in your moments of difficulty and crisis and conflict and bad situations, it really comes down to this. Either you believe in God or you don't. I mean, it really boils down to that. Either you believe in God or you don't. Because if you believe in God, you're going to do one thing. But if you don't have that trust in God, that belief in God, you'll do something else. That's why revenge or seeking to get even or anything like that is what those who don't believe in God, that's what they do. Why? Because if you don't believe there is a God who rewards righteousness and faithfulness, if you don't believe that there is a God who rewards doing good and being loyal, then what motive is there to be loyal and righteous? Why be good? if being good is never rewarded. In fact, let me give you a simple spiritual principle that you and I would do well to allow to dominate our thinking. And not only something like this, but in all parts of our life. And maybe you've heard it before. It's kind of cliche, but it's very true. God is God and we're not. Right? He is God and we're not. Because once you decide that God is God, you can step back. 
You let him handle the revenge. You can let him handle the getting even and the payback and, ma- tr- and making things right with those who have wronged us. But our challenge is really accepting that God is God and we're not. How do I know? Same way you do. Because whenever we try to step in and be in charge to control the situation, to control the environment, to control the conversation, whenever we try to be in control, we are not living as if we really believe that God is God. And I got to tell you, this, this topic of control, it seems like it, it's been an underlying sub-theme for a lot of people in our church during this series. I've had m- a disproportionate amount of conversations on this topic of control with people, a lot of them. A lot of you have talked to me face-to-face emails And it seems like God has been speaking to a lot of you saying, do you believe God is God or do you not? Is he God and you're not? Is he in control or are you in control? 1 Samuel 25 verse 23, or 26 verse 23, the Lord gives his own reward when you do good and when you're loyal and when you're righteous and when you're faithful. Do you believe that? One email I thought said it well. I was having a conversation with somebody about this and they said this, thanks Chris. I wish I knew what my next steps would or should be. Me trying to be in control, you ready for this? Has completely worn me out. But at least now God has my attention. Is that you this morning? Are you in that kind of place where all that control is finally wearing you out? The person goes on and says says this. says, I picture it akin to lunging a fractious horse until she gets out all the pent-up energy so training and work can begin. person goes on and says, I'm all lunged out. And now all I can do is pay attention and show up. Prayers would be appreciated. Is that you, your story? Because I read that and I go, I, that's a person like many of us who say, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it, I can figure it out on my own. And I think God just comes back to us and just asks us the question, yeah, how's it going? How's it going? And some of you are like, well, I'm not totally worn out yet. I still got a little more to try. I just want to encourage you, don't go there. This is where it ends up. How about you just say now, okay, God, I trust you. I'll trust you. I'll lean into you. I'll press into you. That's what David did. Finally, he believed in God. And therefore, because he truly believed in God, he said, okay, I don't have to take matters into my own hands. Rather, I'm going to wait for God to work it out and work out the situation. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust God's timing. Verse 25, Saul says out to David, David, may you be blessed, my son. You'll do great things and surely triumph. In other words, David, or Saul was saying, David, you're a better man than I am, and you're going to win in the end. How prophetic that really was if you know the story. But with those words, they parted ways and went their separate ways. It was the last time that David would see Saul alive. But here's the question for us. Why does Samuel include these two stories of David sparing Saul's life? The one we looked at today, the one Pastor Derek looked at two weeks ago. On chapter 24, two weeks ago in the cave at En Gedi, 
God was teaching David a very important lesson about sparing your enemy. And to put it in New Testament terms, David was learning like a negative lesson, if you want to put it that way, which Romans 12, 17 says it this way, never pay back evil with more evil. But what about chapter 6? Why does David take a risk? Why does David get bold and courageous and slip into a camp and, and where, where he, his life could be taken and take the spear and take the water jug and then slip back out and call out to Saul and then return the spear to him? Why does David do that? Just to prove again that he spared Saul's life? No. In other words, what's going on? Why did David go out of his way to create an opportunity to spare Saul's life a second time? I think the answer is found in verse 24. 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 24, David says this to Saul. He says, I valued your life today. When David said, I valued your life today, he's explaining why he took the risk. David did it out of concern for Saul. David did it because he, he saw what, what was going on with Saul. David didn't go into the camp to kill Saul. He went in the camp to save Saul, to turn his heart back to God. It was David's way of saying, Saul, listen, God has made you king. Look, the spear's right here. You know, another physical illustration, because David had gotten a lot of physical illustration from God in the last few weeks. He's like, look, you, this is a symbol. This is to let you know God chose you. You're the anointed king, but you have turned your back on God. And I, I'm not here to kill you. I'm here to help you and to help you turn back to God. I really want you to get right with God. Despite all that Saul had done wrong against him, David still cared about him. Therefore, he was willing to be courageous, even willing to take insane risks to demonstrate his love and care and concern. Now, for you and I, it might be easy for us to dismiss this story in our, for our own life. We'd be like, okay, I, I get it, David. You have an enemy. I don't have any, like, real enemies per se. But listen to this, verse 8, very interesting. Abishai referred to Saul as David en David's enemy, but you and I have already seen, what did Saul call David? He called him my what? My, my son. We're not talking about, you know, enemies who are just overtly pure evil and it's like they're obvious, you know, they're terrorists, they're this, they're that. Okay, that person's pure evil. That's not what we're talking about here. In the biblical sense, my enemies are much more likely to be people who are close to me. So when Jesus, when the Bible talks about our enemies, be careful to not be quick to dismiss. He calls him David, my son. In other words, most of my enemies are going to come from my own family. Most of my enemies are going to be part of my circle of close friends, church members, my buddies at work, the people that know me best. In other words, the people that me, that you, that we have some type of relationship with, and that for whatever reason right now, there isn't complete harmony and unity in that relationship. That's what the story's about. It's about loving those who we have been or are currently in a relationship with. And for what, whatever has occurred, currently we are not in complete relational harmony with. Things aren't totally right. 
There needs to be some type, some form of reconciliation and restoration in that sense, biblically. That's our, they're our enemies at the moment. Even though Saul tried to kill him, David loved him. And in this final encounter, David still values his life. In New Testament terms, David was learning the positive message of Romans 12, 21, which says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, he's saying, I want you to be proactive. It's not just not returning evil, just like being, you know, passive. He's saying, I want you to be active, proactive. That's why there's two stories about David sparing Saul's life. Two lessons he had to learn. First, he had to learn to spare his enemy in chapter 24. And in chapter 26, he had to learn to love his enemies. And if you want to understand love, we're not talking feelings here. We're talking action. 1 Corinthians 13 makes it clear that love is actually actions. That loving our enemy means seeing an opportunity and putting ourselves, you know, in a tough situation so that we can demonstrate care and concern to somebody that we're not in relational harmony with right now. And I know, I get it, we'd be perfectly happy, just kind of like, I don't have time to deal with that. I got enough going on my life in front of me with the things I can see that I know about that are clear and obvious. I don't have, I don't want to put any energy towards that. But 1 Samuel chapter 26, the Bible tells us that type of attitude is, is not an option for us. God doesn't give us that option. God wants us to be bold and courageous and care enough about those who we are not in a harmony with and reach out. David modeled this for, had it modeled for him last week in 1 Samuel 25 with Abigail. I mean, she came, I mean, these were enemies, and she came, and she risked it, and she, she modeled godliness and wisdom and courage, and now David is putting into practice what he saw modeled for him last week. Jesus said, love your enemies as long as you pay them back. Is that what he says? He just says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Payback's not part of the equation. So my question to you this morning as we wrap it up, what is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to do? Who is God calling you to love this morning? What phone call, what email, what face-to-face conversation is God calling you to? It may be that person that you have cut out of your life because they hurt you. And God is saying you need to take care of some unfinished business. It may, may mean that you need to begin praying for a good opportunity to show love to someone who, for whatever reason, has turned against you. Maybe it's the coach who yells and screams at your kids and berates them every single time they get on the field and you've just been boiling inside. You need to reach out. It might be that salesperson who's turned the numbers into a competition. And they've taken it too far with you and they've crossed the line. It might be a spouse that you're just no longer dialed in with. You're no longer on the same page. It might be a coworker who's constantly putting you down in front of the boss or in front of others. It may be a church member that you once had a special relationship with, but that fr- relationship has been fractured. It won't be easy, but I guarantee God will be with you. God will give you his grace and his peace and his strength. God will bless you when you dare to obey his word. Now listen, he may not bless you the way you want, but remember, God will bless. 1 Corinthians chapter 26, verse 23, the Lord rewards everyone 
for their righteousness and faithfulness, for doing good, for being loyal. Who's, who's up for it? Who's ready to demonstrate courageous love, just like David did? <laughs>